Our Bible reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 12, and I'm going to be reading the first 11 verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of the Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom had been raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Amen. Thank you, Jim. Well, good morning. My name is Adam. If we haven't met yet, I have the privilege of uh, serving on staff here and now opening up God's word for us this morning. You know, back in 2010, I had the privilege of going to Israel, Jordan, and Egypt as part of a, a biblical studies tour. And it was as amazing as it sounds. We received incredible teaching and we saw some incredible sights. We visited the great pyramids, went into one, into the, the cavern where the, the Pharaoh was buried. We saw the Valley of the Kings. We climbed Mount Sinai and slept a night on top with some local Bedouins under the stars. We swam in the Dead Sea, the Nile River, the Sea of Galilee. We went to the Kidron Valley where David defeated Goliath. I mean, on and on I could go. And I don't mean to, to rub it in. Um. <laughs> we also visited this place, the treasury, which is in Petra. Now, this place has been made famous, of course, by Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. That's where some of the, the filming was done for that movie. But while we were in Petra, we not only got to ride donkeys through the city, we also got to have dinner with the local sheikh, the sheikh of Petra, the, the leader of the local Muslim community in the city, in his home. Now it was a, a surreal experience to, to sit down and to talk with and to engage with his family members. Now the sheikh himself was not very talkative, he kind of just observed the dinner, uh, but we got to engage and to chat with uh, these people, his family, who we would not have otherwise had the opportunity to talk with and to engage with. 
And the truth is, to eat with someone has the ability to break down barriers and to build bridges. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but this is why in the Gospels we always see Jesus eating. Luke chapter 7 says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Because this was how Jesus would reach out to others. This is how he would get to know them. And as we read the Gospels and we come across Jesus eating, we too are being invited to get to know him, to hear from him, to learn from him, to meet with him. And this is what we see in the story that we're looking at this morning. We're in the middle of a sermon series that we've called Meeting Jesus. What we're doing is we're looking at a a number of different encounters that Jesus had with all different kinds of people in the Gospel of John. So far in this series, we've looked at Jesus' interaction with a confused minister, week one. And there's, you know, lots of those around. Trust me, I would know. (laughs) We looked at week number two, Jesus' interaction with a social outcast, the woman at the well. Last week, we looked at Jesus' interaction with a condemned woman. Now, you can catch up with those sermons on the website or on the podcast if you've missed any of those and would like to to catch up. Now, today, we're going to look at Jesus' interaction with a devoted follower. A devoted follower. See, there's a lot going on in this passage that Jim read for us a moment ago, but at the center of it all, is Mary's act of devotion during dinner. The pouring out of this expensive perfume to wash and to anoint Jesus' feet. Now Mary, of course, was the the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now Lazarus had been raised from the dead by Jesus in the previous chapter, in chapter 11. And Jesus had moved on from there, but he has now returned to Bethany, to their hometown, which is only a few kilometers from Jerusalem, where Jesus would be crucified in only six days from the date of this dinner. And with Jesus back in town, they have thrown a dinner to honor him. Now Mary was busy serving at this dinner as usual, and Lazarus was reclining at the table, which must have been a shock to them still. I mean, I know you've probably been to a lot of great dinner parties, but you've never been to one with someone who was brought back from the dead. But the presence of Lazarus at this dinner party was not the only shock in store. The actions of Mary towards Jesus during this dinner, they would change the entire atmosphere of the party. They would scandalize Judas and the disciples. They would be celebrated by Jesus and they would reverberate throughout history. And today, as we look at the actions of Mary, we see a picture of what it means to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. We are given a a glimpse. In fact, Mary gives us a picture of what a devoted follower of Jesus looks like. And of course, she is a complete contrast to Judas, who on the surface looks like a follower of Jesus. But if you dig a little bit deeper, it becomes obvious that he is a devious and deceived pretender. And so the story kind of forces us to compare these two and to ask the question, am I with Mary or am I with Judas? 
Am I genuinely and wholeheartedly following Jesus? Or am I deceived and merely pretending? And of course, how do you know? How do you know if you're with Mary or if you're with Judas? Well, the story shows us three things, three marks of a devoted follower of Jesus that I'd like us to look at. The first is this, to meet the real Jesus means to abandon your pride. It means to humble yourself. It means to care more about your devotion to Jesus than what other people think about you or even expect of you. Now Mary has done several things in this act that are socially unacceptable. In fact, more than that, they are undignified, even disgraceful. First of all, she washes and anoints Jesus' feet. Now in that day, to touch the feet of somebody else was degrading. They wore sandals, the roads were dusty, their feet were nasty. And so to clean, the job, uh, to clean feet was a job reserved for a slave. But not only has Mary touched Jesus' feet, she has untied her hair. Now there were strict rules around how much hair a woman could show in that day. And to untie your hair completely like this was highly improper, highly inappropriate. Everyone at this party who saw this would have been blushing. And then, to not use a towel, but to use her hair to wipe Jesus' feet, to clean Jesus' feet, it was even more demeaning, it was even more lowly. Mary's actions have changed the atmosphere of this party. This is why verse three says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary's actions fill the house with an aroma of perfume, with an aroma, not just physically, but also spiritually. Mary's unfiltered devotion to Jesus, it made the others at the party uncomfortable. It made them blush, it even made them grumble. But Mary is not put off by social expectation. She looks at Jesus and she says, I know who you are and I know you deserve my worship. I will not let my pride get in the way of what I know I must do. You see, Mary considered Jesus more valuable than the opinion of others, than her reputation, than her social standing. And if you want to follow the real Jesus in this world, you need to get to this point as well. To be so moved by your devotion to Jesus that you are willing to brave the disapproval of others, the dent to your reputation, the hit to your social standing. In fact, I was talking with one of our members this week and they shared with me that for many years, they would never tell their co-workers that they went to church. When someone asked them the question, what you do on the weekend? They would say, you know, I hung out at home or I caught up with some friends, but they would never say that they went to church. Until a few years ago when they were challenged to bring Jesus into every area of their life. And since making that decision to be more open about their faith, it has opened up all kinds of other doors, including the opportunity to pray for and pray with a client recently. And so is Jesus more valuable to you than the opinion of others, than your reputation, than your social standing? 
Now, I know there is, we might say, an increasing antagonism towards Christians in Australia. I mean, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're not going to be part of the popular group. Now, you're not going to get killed like in North Korea and Afghanistan. But it might kill your chance for a promotion at work. It might exclude you from the popular group at school or at uni or whatever else. It might make you seem weird among your friends. Are you okay with that? Is Jesus enough for you? Are you willing to abandon your pride, to humble yourself, to follow Jesus, whatever the social cost? This is what we see in the example of Mary. She abandons her pride, she humbles herself. But why does she do it? Why does Mary do this act of extravagant devotion for Jesus? What moved her so deeply? Well, this leads us to the second mark of a devoted follower of Jesus. The first is to abandon your pride. The second is to understand his death. Now, when it comes to the Christian life and to following Jesus, it's not just what we do that matters, it's why we do it, why we do what we do. And so you might come to church, give, serve, read your Bible, help the poor, do all of those things. But if we only do those things because that's what we've always done, it's habit, it's nostalgia, or we're trying to, to make a deal with God, God, I'll do these things for you if you'll just do this thing for me, or we're trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. I mean, if those are our underlying motivations, then it's worthless. And it might actually lead us to start to feel superior to other people. Because look at all that I do for God, and, and look at all those people over, over there who don't do anything. Or it might lead us to, to burn out and to give up. Because after all that I've done for God, look at what he has allowed to happen to me. I mean, there's only one truly Christian motivation. There's only one motivation that will sustain you through the ups and the downs of life. And we see it in Jesus' response to Mary. Look at what he says, verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume, this expensive perfume, for the day of my burial. Now, it's something of an odd statement, but Jesus is saying, Mary somehow recognized what he was about to do in six days' time, to die on a cross. Now, she didn't understand it all exactly, but she understood something the disciples did not yet know, that Jesus was going to die, and he was going to die for her. Now, remember that Mary has just witnessed recently Jesus raise her brother Lazarus from the dead. Mary has probably heard Jesus talk about his impending death. Mary probably recognized some of the dark clouds that were beginning to gather around Jesus. In fact, the very last verse of chapter 11 before this story says this, but the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. This dinner party is an act of insurrection. And Mary sees all of this going on. And she has a sense of what is coming for Jesus. And so when she gets down on her feet to anoint Jesus, she's saying, I don't understand how, I don't understand why exactly, Lord. But I realize 
that you were doing something for me and it moves me deeply. Mary is moved to this act of extravagant devotion because of her understanding of Jesus' death. And this is what should motivate our devotion to Jesus as well. This is the way the hymn writer Isaac Watts put it many years ago. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The motivation to follow Jesus, whatever the cost, it's grateful joy for the fact that Jesus has died in your place, that your guilt has been taken away, your sin is paid for, you are loved and accepted by God. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Is this what moves you? It reminds me of a story that Charles Spurgeon often told about a farmer, a king, and a nobleman. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. One day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this and he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? The next day the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Why do you follow Jesus? Is it to get something from him? Or is it to give yourself to him totally because he has given himself totally for you? Which leads us to the third and final mark of a devoted follower of Jesus that we see in this passage. It means to abandon your pride, to understand his death, and to give him all you have. Now there's another character in this story, Judas. And he's not happy at all about what Mary has done. He objects in verse five, saying, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He's saying to Mary, look, to be devoted to Jesus is fine, but don't get too crazy about it. Don't get too fanatical. Surely something worth this much could have been used better. 
could have been used for the poor. Now we're told in a, a little comment that Judas's concern for the poor was not genuine. He was the treasurer of Jesus' band of disciples, which means he had control of the kitty, the money bag, and he would often help himself to the contents of the money bag. And so when he saw Mary pouring out this expensive perfume to wash Jesus' feet, he didn't see a beautiful act of devotion. He saw profit being poured into the dust. So he objects. And we might think, tut, 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 Judas. But let's not be too quick to judge Judas. This uh, bottle of perfume, Chanel number no. five, is worth $30,000. Now, imagine you're at a party and someone brings this bottle of perfume out and you, you're told how much it costs and then they crack it open and, and use it to wash someone's feet. I'm sure, certain, that you would have some thoughts about that. And so let's admit that we can probably understand and sympathize with Judas. Isn't this a bit over the top? Isn't this a bit wasteful, a bit excessive? We might even expect Jesus to agree with Judas. Say, yeah, you're right, Judas. This should have been used to help the poor. But that's not what Jesus says. In fact, Jesus rebukes Judas. Verse 7, leave her alone. Because Jesus knows that when it comes to devotion to him, there is no such thing as over the top. In fact, in Matthew 13, the follower of Jesus is somebody who finds a treasure hidden in a field. And they then go away and sell everything else that they own to buy that field. Because they know that the treasure is worth far more than anything else. And so have you come to this realization that Jesus is worth more than anything else? That he is better than anything it might cost you to follow him. And the reality is that following Jesus in this world is going to cost you many things. But what you gain from Jesus is infinitely greater. I mean, following Jesus in this world, it might cost you a relationship. But the love that you lose for Christ, it does not compare to the love that you gain from Christ. Following Jesus in this world is going to cost you time. If you are devoted to Jesus, then you are going to be devoted to his people, to the church. Part of which means that on Sunday mornings, you are going to bring yourself and you're going to bring your family here to worship Jesus. Now, does this mean that you're not going to be able to go to the beach as much as you'd like? To sleep in as often as you'd like? To have as many hobbies as you'd like? Probably. But does it mean you're missing out? Absolutely not. Because Jesus is better. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, Psalm 84 says. It's going to cost you time to follow Jesus. It's also absolutely going to cost you money. If you want to genuinely follow Jesus in this world, it's going to cost you money. Jesus says it bluntly. You cannot serve both God and money. You've got to make a choice. And the Bible says that we are to be generous with what God has blessed us with. To give to, to the church, to give to the poor, to give to organizations who are doing good in this world. Now in the Old Testament, the principle was the tithe, 10%. You might say, Adam, that's the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't talk about tithing. 
Let me just say this. Do you think that in light of all that God has done for us in Jesus, his life, death, burial, resurrection, that God is now calling on us to be less generous? How should the grace of God, so freely given to us in Jesus, how should that change our giving? Should it make us less generous or more generous? To be devoted to Jesus in this world will cost you money, but the eternal riches that you gain make it pale in comparison. To follow Jesus will cost you comfort and security because you're not about building your kingdom, you're about extending God's kingdom, which means that you might be sent to hard and difficult places. But the comfort and the security that you forfeit in this life does not compare to the joy and security that you gain from Jesus. It makes me think of the story of John Patton. In 1858, John Patton and his wife decided to become missionaries to the South Pacific Islands. But they came under criticism for their decision. An elder in their church rebuked them and warned them and said, you will be eaten by cannibals. To which John Patton responded, and I just love this. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Or I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hanged by the Nazis in 1945 for staying faithful to Jesus. Now before he died, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, the message was that being devoted to Jesus, so devoted that it will cost you something in this life, that's not, a super, uh, that's not a, an extra option for the super spiritual elite. That is just ordinary Christianity. He called it costly grace as opposed to cheap grace, and here's what he meant. He said grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a person his life, and it is grace because it gives a person the only true life. Listen, following Jesus will cost you many things in this life. But what you gain from Jesus is infinitely greater. And if your faith in Jesus is not costing you anything, then are you following the real Jesus? Don't be afraid. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And nothing you give up for him, nothing you give up for him will leave you worse off in the end. So are you devoted to Jesus? He's devoted to you. He has given everything for you. And nothing you've done can leave you out and there's nothing you have to do to bring yourself in. Jesus has done it all. And you can give yourself to him totally because he has given himself totally for you. And so I'm going to close by praying for us. And I'm going to leave some space for you to pray as well. And I just want you to ask yourself the question, 
What area of my life am I holding back from Jesus? My relationship? My wallet? My time? My comfort? Have I given him my all? Am I with Mary? Or am I pretending? And listen, if you would admit to yourself, maybe I am pretending. Don't despair. There's still air in your lungs, which means God is not finished with you. And there is grace for you today. So let's pray. Let's be honest with the Lord and let's ask him to go with us as we go from here to serve and follow the Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you have so graciously given everything for us so that we might give everything for you. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Lord, we now spend just a few moments before you and with you to be honest with you, to ask for your grace, your mercy, and your help, which you so freely give. Jesus, that there is no price we could pay in this life for following you that will not be completely and totally worth it in the next. Help us be near to us as we go from here for the good of our community and the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, next week, we're going to be looking at Jesus' interaction with an anxious politician. Love to see you here next week, but why don't we now stand and hear these words from God to us. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.